Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the first installment of Finding the Middle Path, where we talk about coping skills, teenagers, and working with teenagers. Before we start, I thought I'd share a little bit about myself. My name is Lucinda Autumn. I've worked at CMR Visions, a drug and alcohol treatment center for teenage girls for about the last 12 years. Currently, I'm a substance use professional trainee. It's a mouthful, I know. I'm also what you might call a self-taught DBT enthusiast, a DBT Jedi, if you will. DBT is shorthand for Dialectical Behavior Therapy, which I'll explain a little more in depth in just a little bit. I've been leading discussions about DBT with teenagers and adults alike for going on about 10 years now. Most of the information I'll be sharing with you in these sessions is taken from the DBT Skills Manual for Adolescents by Rathus and Miller, but occasionally there'll be coping skills from Alcoholic Anonymous or other sources. You may be wondering why I would spend my free time doing this. Well, the short answer is, I love DBT, and I love talking about it. There is a longer answer though, and it starts with this. No matter what your job description reads, if you work with the adolescent population, an unspoken part of your job is to role model healthy behavior skills, like coping skills. In order to do that, you have to become very comfortable using those skills yourself, and if you don't know them, how can you do that? A little about the name of our podcast here. The skills manual gives us the definition of dialectical as two opposite ideas can be true at the same time and when considered together can create a new way of viewing the situation. Let's face it, usually teenagers and adults have very different ideas on how things can be. Essentially, the spirit of DBT is to find a new workable truth in the middle of two opposing ideas. So by using it in our actions, we can find a way to work together harmoniously. Hence, the name of our little podcast here. It's also a play on one of the sections in the manual called Walking the Middle Path, but we'll get to that later. My goal with these sessions is to give you a deeper understanding of these coping skills so you can walk the walk and talk the talk. What can you expect from these lessons? Well, what I'm planning to do is give you a short introduction to one or two coping skills, usually DBT, each session. I also want to give you a little bit of discussion on how you can use coping skills in work life, followed by a discussion of how you might encounter the presented skills when working with adolescents. And now for the promised information about DBT. Dialectical Behavior Therapy was developed by Marsha Linehan originally for clients with suicidal or self-injurious behaviors who were at high risk of suicide. There's been quite a bit of research into the effectiveness in DBT, and for the people who DBT was most effective for, the common thread was the presence of emotional dysregulation. I don't know how experienced y'all are with teenagers, but they are often emotionally dysregulated. And let's face it, in the current times, adults are often emotionally dysregulated as well. So these coping skills, which are very helpful for dysregulated individuals, can be helpful for anyone. The coping skills are broken down into five sections. Mindfulness, distress tolerance, walking the middle path, emotion regulation, and interpersonal effectiveness. At Visions, my place of employment, we've broken it down to about 15 weeks a cycle. Which leads us to our first DBT module. We're going to start in the mindfulness section. Mindfulness lies at the heart of DBT. Every skill that you learn will require some amount of mindfulness. The skills manual suggests starting each lesson with a mindfulness practice, so at Visions, we begin each session with either a mindfulness activity or a guided meditation. This is to ensure that no matter what point a person might join, they understand how important mindfulness is in cultivating their DBT mastery. Mindfulness has two flavors, as I call them, which are full awareness, or an opened mind, and attentional control, or a focused mind. There are many ways you can practice each of these types of mindfulness, but here's a few. 
For opened mind, give yourself a few moments, close your eyes, and reach out with each one of your other senses. You'll pay attention to what you hear, so if you're sitting in a room in a relatively populated area, maybe you hear cars outside, or the wind blowing, or kids playing. Maybe a train might roll by in the distance. You pay attention also to what you can feel. So for me, I can feel the chair on my butt and a bar under my feet since I'm sitting in a raised chair. I can also feel the hat that's on my head and the heater blowing air on my feet. You pay attention to anything you can taste and anything you can smell. During this time, you'd also pay attention to any internal sensations that you might notice. So you give yourself those two minutes, just allowing yourself to experience your senses. And that's called having an open mind or using full awareness. For attentional control or having a focused mind, you pay absolutely all your attention to one single thing. So it could be a picture that you're examining, or you can look at the palm of your hand, or focus on the experience of your feet on the floor. The key is that it should be just one single thing. Another practice is having a focused mind while eating something. That's actually one of the things I like doing with the teenagers I work with. I bring in those little tiny Snickers bars and then have a guided mindfulness exercise while they eat the Snickers bar. So we'd start by having them try to smell the Snickers bar through its wrapper and then have them touch the Snickers bar and try to feel its bumps and grooves. And let me tell you, it drives them a little insane. Finally, we'll have them open it and try to touch it as lightly as they can with just one finger while I instruct them to think about all the layers of the candy and where the layers originated from. So I'll be saying stuff like, think of the peanuts in their shells and the cow that the milk came from, things like that. You do this for about six minutes, which for a teenager is pretty much forever before they finally get to eat it and still practicing mindfulness, of course. For the most part, they'll pretty much always say the experience of eating it is unlike anything they've ever had with a Snickers bar. So that's a really fun way to practice mindfulness. One thing to remember about these two things is that it's very difficult to practice either type of mindfulness for an untrained mind, particularly these days. If you think about it, we often have multiple things going on at once. We're playing games on our phone, listening to music, probably trying to have a conversation all at the same time. So turning all of that off and just having one thing to pay attention to, pretty soon your mind is going to be like, hey, where are my Candy Crush at? Why is there no music on? What you have to do is practice. As you practice more, you get a lot better and it gets easier. So that's one thing to keep in mind for yourself and for them. You have to keep practicing. It just doesn't come naturally and that's okay. There are a lot of benefits to mindfulness as well. One of them is that by being mindful, while you're living, you have more choices and you have more control over your behavior. If you think of your emotions on a scale from zero to 100, if you can notice your emotion when it's at the beginning of the scale, you can do something to cope with the emotion so you don't act impulsively. Impulsive actions are usually the ones that get us in trouble. So if we can tamper those down, we'll be in a lot better shape for the future. Being mindful can also help you make important decisions by examining all parts of an issue, including your emotional responses. It also makes you more effective and productive. If you're paying attention to one thing, you're not wasting energy adding in things that don't actually matter in the moment. For instance, if I'm at work and I'm thinking about this podcast, I'm thinking about work that I have to do, and I'm also thinking about the magic deck that I want to make, I'll go to the same place like four times because I've forgotten what I've gone into the room for. If I would have just focused on whatever task is at hand, I'd have saved myself three pointless trips to the same room. 
So now we come to the first actual skill that we're going to chat about, which is the three mind states. These are emotional mind, reasonable mind, and wise mind. The first one we're going to talk about is emotional mind. It's ruled by feelings and urges. If you're in this mind state, the actions you take are likely going to be whatever your initial urges were. For instance, if you just got into a fight with someone and you're feeling angry, you might have the urge to slam the door on your way out, so you do that. If you're talking to a teenager and they start to get on your nerves, you might have the urge to make a passive-aggressive comment, so you do that. That's something that I'm guilty of sometimes. If you're feeling sad, you might have the urge to cry or just stay in bed all day, so you do that. Being an emotional mind is not always a problem. Sometimes it can motivate you to do something that you may not have done otherwise, but sometimes it is, which is why we can't always live in emotional mind. The complete opposite of emotional mind is reasonable mind, which is ruled by thinking, facts, and logic. Being in reasonable mind helps you make effective decisions in life. Take the grocery store, for instance. A person in reasonable mind might make a grocery list and maybe even become familiar with the store's floor plan so that they can get all the things that they need without having to go back and forth between aisles, therefore saving themselves time. Both of these mind states have their pros and cons, of course. So what we want to do is find a way for them to work together. That's called being in your wise mind. Wise mind includes both reason and emotion. It's the wisdom within each person and the state of mind to access to avoid acting impulsively. And when you need to make an important decision, you want to be in your wise mind. The easiest way to talk about this is to have an example. So in the book, they talk about puppies. So let's pretend, and if there are any pet people out there, you'll relate to this, that I've just walked into the Humane Society and I see all these lovely, adorable, too cute for word puppies. If I'm acting from my emotional mind, I'm thinking, oh my God, these puppies are adorable. I must have all of them. I have to rescue them. If I can't rescue them, they'll just be here forever and they'll be sad and I will never stop being able to think about it. I must have all the puppies. So that would be thinking from my emotional mind. If I think from my reasonable mind, I think, okay, I live in an apartment that doesn't allow pets, so I can't buy one puppy, much less all the puppies. Also, I don't have money to support five different puppies. Like it's gonna be expensive for puppies and, and I have no one to let them out when I'm at work during the day. I'm really not a person that wants to have them in a kennel all day. So when I get home, there would be poop and pee everywhere. There's no way that I can have any puppies. There's nothing I can do. If I take both of those together and I access my wise mind while I'm thinking about these puppies, I might tell myself, okay, I want all the puppies. I logistically cannot have all the puppies. What can I do? Well, with permission from the Humane Society, of course, maybe I could take some pictures of the puppies and I can put them on Facebook and I can tag a few friends that I know are pet people that have plenty of room for dogs and maybe have another dog that needs a friend and maybe they can give them homes. Maybe I can offer to walk the puppies when I get off work because I like going on walks anyway or offer to puppy sit from time to time if they need a little break from the puppies or if they want to help socialize the puppies, I could take the puppies to a dog park. 
So that would be using my wise mind. So I'm taking in how I feel about the puppies, that I want them to have happy, safe homes. The fact that I'm also taking in the fact that I can't have the puppies because reason one, two, and three, four, reason of millions, right? And putting them together to try and figure out a way that I can help the puppies. So that's in essence how each emotional or how each mind state would react to seeing puppies at a humane society. Okay, let's talk about the mind states at work. If I camp out all day in my emotional mind while working with teenagers, I'm probably going to be angry like all the time. Part of my job is saying no when they want something that I can't give them or when they want something now that they can't have now. They don't like hearing that. They usually have a few choice words for me. If my emotional mind responds to their emotional mind, we will just be amping each other up all day. It's a long way to spend 40 hours. Another way that I might be in my emotional mind at work is through sadness. Working in a treatment center for teenagers, you hear a lot of very sad stories. Mine, and most other people's natural emotional reaction, is sadness because I'm hearing some very traumatic stories. Constant sadness is not a sustainable way to be at work, so I just can't live in my emotional mind all the time. On the other hand, if I live in my rational mind all the time, it will not be me that's angry, it will be the teenagers. As an example, one of the things that's kind of a big deal at the treatment center I work at is stickers. They do a little bit of extra work on their skill homework every day and they get a cool sticker. It's just kind of a fun way to give them a little bit of extra motivation. They take those stickers very seriously and if someone takes one of their stickers, they get very upset. If I was living in rational mind, I might say, dude, it's like a penny sticker. It's all right. It's not a big deal. If you say that to a teenager that's elevated because something they cared about is gone, even if it's a one cent sticker, they will become very upset with you, very angry. And there are tons of examples like that. If you react in rational mind to someone in their emotional mind, it does not go well. So the best mind state to be in at work is probably wise mind. You need to have a little bit of your emotional mind and a little bit of your reasonable mind to remind you that teenagers are emotional and you can't discount that. You can't discount their emotions because one, that invalidates their emotional experience, which leads to more dysregulation, and two, it just pisses them off. So wise mind is the place to be while you're at work. If we look at the other side, mind states in adolescence, we see that most teenagers live firmly planted in their emotional minds. Think inside out. The concept of reasonable mind and by extension wise mind can be hard for them to understand. The best way for them to understand it then is to learn by role modeling. So by role modeling wise mind yourself, which is beneficial for you, can also be very beneficial for the teenagers. It helps them build understanding about what's going on. It also helps them to know that they can feel a certain way and act in a different way, which for them might be something that they don't see anywhere else. Depending on what their home situation's like, they may only see what happens when someone lives in their emotional mind. Another thing to know is that being in their wise mind might be really uncomfortable initially, and that just doesn't go for teenagers, that can go for adults as well. If you're always used to being your reasonable mind, letting your emotions play a part in your decisions is pretty uncomfortable. And the same thing for emotional mind. If you're always used to doing whatever your emotional mind says because that's what kept you safe all your life, adding in the reasonable justification for things can be really uncomfortable. And it just feels really weird. 
So that's one thing to remember is allow them the space and yourself to be uncomfortable. I tell them that all the time. It's not going to be comfortable and that's okay. Over time, it gets a little easier. It may not ever be entirely intuitive and that's okay too. Everyone is a little different. Like everything else, the key is to practice, practice, practice. So that was our discussion for this session of Finding the Middle Path, talking about mindfulness and the three mind states. Thank you for your attention. As I mentioned, all this information was taken from the DBT Skills Manual for Adolescents by Jill Rathis and Alec Miller. If you want more information on the three mind states, you can look up that book, or if you just type it into Google, I'm sure you'll find lots of information. Thank you so much for listening and taking some time out of your day to spend 20 minutes or so with me, and I'll see you on our next walk to find the middle path.